Southbridge. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas if you're in Theater 14 or watching online. We are grateful to be able to gather together and sing about the name of Jesus Christ. And uh, it's great just to uh, be able to have some of you have family in town. I see we've got some friends that we mentioned, Hearts Cry Ministry, at the beginning of the service. The founder or one of the founders are here, and so we're glad that you're here. And those of you who are guests, we're, we're glad that you're able to be with us today. And I know Carrie mentioned at the beginning of the service, uh, our Christmas Eve service tomorrow night, let me just also mention to you, if you're a regular part of our church, we would love it if you go to the website and uh, register your children that are 0 to 23 months old, uh, just so we're ready. As many volunteers as we can have in there, we want to know for the folks that are coming, um, that are knowing and planning they're coming. Um, that we're ready for the kids, and so we want to bless your little ones in that way. We know there are people from the community that will come, and they didn't register, and we'll be ready for that, but as much as we can in-house, the family, um, we want to make sure that we're ready for your little ones, and so if you'd please tell us, and if you have a relative that has 83 little kids that are coming, please let us know that. Um, so we, we're looking forward to that. It's going to be a great night singing, celebrating Jesus Christ, the birth of our Savior, and I'll share the gospel, and we'll have some special, special time of worship together, and so we hope that you're able to be a, a part of that. And today what we're going to do is we're going to continue in the series um, called Timely Christmas that we've been doing. It's really been one long message. Um, this is part four. And so thank you for coming for the conclusion. Those of you who like to skip to the end of the novel, if you haven't been here this week, um, but we're glad uh, that you're able to be with us. And uh, we're going to talk about God's truth together. And we're going to ask God to open up our hearts to that. So will you pray with me? and pray. Father, um, we come into your presence and uh, we acknowledge that you dwell in unapproachable light, that you are holy and righteous and just and separate from us. But by your grace, you allow us to come to you. And we thank you for your grace. We thank you for the grace that you showed in sending your son, Jesus Christ. I pray for those who may be coming to church uh, today just because it's almost Christmas and that's what you're supposed to do. Maybe they did that growing up, that today you'd bring them to the knowledge of an experiential relationship with your son, Jesus, the knowledge of a saving and powerful relationship with your son, Jesus Christ, that your spirit would be present, evident, and clear. And Father God, I pray for those that are believers that need a word of comfort, that you speak that today, and encouragement and conviction and whatever needs to happen, God. For those who need to repent, I pray that they would not be able to live in their sin any longer. You'd make them so uncomfortable that something would have to happen for all of us that we grow in depth and richness of knowing you more as a result of our time together in your word. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, these are exciting days, only two days away from Christmas. Remember what it was like when you were a kid? For those of you, some of you are still excited, but you remember what it was like being a child and the anticipation of Christmas? What was going to happen that next morning? You didn't know. You didn't know whether you're naughty or nice and all that kind of stuff. You're in your stocking, you're going to get a hockey stick or whatever it was that you were longing for as a child. But there's something about childhood exuberance, their excitement about Christmas that, that's so neat. You wish you could bottle it up and capture it. And uh, just hearing different people, sometimes it fades after a while and, and you do it for other people, Christmas Day, but being together with family or traditions or the presents or whatever it is, there's something special about that anticipation. And I get reminded about that uh, just because of the stage of life that we're at as a family. And uh, we've got four little kids, for those of you who might be new here to the church. And our oldest daughter, Ella, she's seven years old, and she and I went out on a, a date this week. And on Monday night, it was, um, was kind of like a multitasking date for me because the first part was daddy-daughter night. And uh, we went to South Point Mall, and we had a very fancy meal at the uh, food court there. Uh, and we were sitting there and, and just talking through life. And then afterwards, this is why I was multitasking, afterwards I took her shopping for her mom's Christmas presents. And so we got Christmas shopping done early for me uh, this year. And uh, I took her, my seven-year-old, because she's the oldest. She's the least likely to tell mom all of the things that we looked at and bought for her while we were at the mall. And so I took her, thinking that she'd be the safest. And we, just had, a, we had a few special moments together. 
There was one time when we were walking out at South Point. I don't know if you've been there or not before, but they've got all the outside shopping, and it'll be like people playing with fire. <laughs> it's a great place for kids. And, uh, you know, playing with fire and uh, people doing music and all that kind of stuff. And we're walking out there, and we're holding hands. We're just kind of, you know, going through the store. We're headed into Barnes & Noble. And uh, Ella just says to me, Christmas is the best day of the whole year. She was so excited about it. It just kind of resonated in my heart. So I tried to manipulate her to say that statement multiple times throughout the rest of the day. And so I'd say, you know, Ella, Christmas is a really good day, isn't it? She'd go, no, it is the best day of the whole year, which makes other 364 days not that great, right? But, But for that moment, it's a really exciting time. And the excitement is so much for a little kid. And it became evident to me a few days later how excited Ella really is about Christmas because I got a text message from my wife. And it said that she was having a conversation with Ella. And Ella doesn't have a lot of experiences in life. She's only seven, hasn't had a lot without my wife. And she says, one time, we were on our way into Barnes & Noble. And we realized they don't sell Starbucks gift certificates, only Barnes & Noble gift certificates. To which my wife says, very astutely, Ella, are you telling me my Christmas presents? To which Ella responds, um... She didn't even realize what she was doing. She's just so excited about Christmas. There's an anticipation there. So you could call it an eager expectation there. And we've been talking about in this series, God's timing. And we've talked about multiple elements of true things about God's timing. But today we're going to talk about where God's timing should lead us. And that God's timing should lead us to an eager expectation. Like a child on Christmas morning that longs for just something mystical. There's something magical. There's something special about Christmas morning. And we as believers in Jesus Christ, that God's timing in our lives, the personal timing, the perfect timing, even the troubling timing, should lead us to a place of eager expectation of the return of his son, Jesus Christ. And so today, that's what we're going to talk about. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in the Gospel of Luke again, in Luke chapter 2, in a story that oftentimes we don't look at at the Christmas time, because it's about a month after Jesus' birth. It's in Luke chapter 2. I'll start reading in verse 21. If you don't have a Bible, we give them away for free every week. Um, if you ever bring a friend or anything like that that needs a Bible, right over by the offering box, we've got them set up over there. If we run out there, just go out to the connections kiosk, say, you know, Scott said that I could have a Bible. Can I have a Bible? And we've got Bibles we'd love to give you. If you have a copy of one, we open them every week. Luke chapter 2, verse 21. And like I said, we're continuing in a, a series that we've been doing. And the first week, we really laid the foundation. The foundational verse for what we're talking about in this series is Galatians chapter 4 and verse 4. It says, but God, but God, two key words in the Bible. He intervenes. He does something. But when the time had fully come, God sent his son. That's the Christmas story. Born of a woman, one of the details. Born under the law. And we really focused in on that first phrase. When the time had fully come, or in the fullness of time, at just the right time, in God's perfect timing. We talked about how God's timing is perfect. And it's perfect every time, in every situation, all the time. Theologically, historically, and even individually, not a hair falls from your head without his plan. Not a sparrow falls from the ground. He cares about every detail. His time is perfect. And we talked about then the next week, as born of a woman. And so from the perspective of that woman, that young girl, Mary, how God's timing, even though it was great news that was coming into her life, it was troubling. And God's timing can be. It's not always, but it can be troubling. Whenever his time and our time aren't quite the same, they're kind of you know, missing each other a little bit, it can be troubling to us. And then we talked about the young man that she was proposed, or engaged to be married to, Joseph, and how in his situation he had a plan. He was going to divorce her. God had a different plan. And God got involved in Joseph's life in a very personal way. And we talked about how God's timing is always personal. God wants to get your attention. He doesn't go to the peripheral stuff. He gets intimate. And he goes right into your heart. He goes right after the stuff that means a lot to you. 
And sometimes we'll think, feel like he's messing with us, but he's not. He's shaking us up and he's getting our attention. It's oftentimes because he wants to do something in our lives. And we saw with each one of those elements, that was a redundant second point, or third, or third point in some situations, but the application point was redundant. This plan can be trusted. His timing's perfect, his plan can be trusted. His timing can be troubling, but his plan can be trusted. His timing is personal, and so his plan can be trusted. And today we talk about how his timing leaves us eagerly expecting, and we're going to look at a story of a man named Simeon who's eagerly expecting Jesus Christ. Look at it in verse 21. It says, On the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise him, referring to Jesus Christ. Remember in Galatians chapter 4, he was born under the law, and he would fulfill the law, and it would redeem those that are under the law. And here we see his parents even taking notice of fulfilling the law that he'd be circumcised on, on the proper day, and that's the day that you would name your child then too. And he was given the name Jesus. And we sang about that name today. It's a very special name. And we'll talk about that. And that's the name the angel had given him before he had been conceived. I remember he tells Mary, and he tells Joseph that if you've been with us. And then we get some context here, and this is actually verses 22 through 24, happened about 33 days later than the first verse we just read. So Jesus is about 40 days old at this point. So when the time of purification, according to the law of Moses, had been completed, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. (laughs) Presenting the Lord to the Lord, right? Presenting him to the Father, to God. As is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord. And to offer sacrifice in keeping with what is said of the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. And here we see even God's grace in the law. There was an offering that was supposed to be offered, and it was a lamb. Interesting, right? For the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. But this couple couldn't afford that. The wise man hadn't come and given the gifts and some of those things yet, and they didn't have the money. And the provision in the law, according to Leviticus, was if you didn't have the money for that, and God's grace, even in the law, is that you could offer two birds, two pigeons, two doves, and they do that. It's just a poor couple here, and that's the scene. And then Luke focuses in on verse 25. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon, who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And so here we have a man who's been waiting, and his whole life is wrapped up in this waiting for Jesus. Talk about eager expectation. If you continue to read through this, and you can do this on your own, we won't get there today. But verses 36 through 38, you see another one. There's a woman, another person, another one who's waiting for Jesus. And what you see in the New Testament is there are people that are the genuine God-fearing people. And I'm talking about real believers now. I'm not talking about the religious people. I'm not talking about super disciplined people or the different sects, you know, the zealots and the Sadducees and the Pharisees. I'm not talking about that. But there's a remnant of people that are genuinely seeking God. And they've got this expectation for the Messiah to come. And it's an eager expectation. And there's a woman named Anna in verses 36 through 38. She's been waiting, some scholars believe, for 84 years. Her husband died after seven years of marriage. And then she lives in the temple and she fasts and she prays and she waits for Jesus. We don't know exactly how long Simeon's been waiting, but he's been waiting too. And what we see from their lives is something that should be true in ours is that God's timing leads to an eager expectation. In our personal lives, it should, doesn't always, but it should, God's timing should lead us to an eager expectation. And I just ask you, as you think about your story and things that are happening in your life and your circumstances, maybe this Christmas, maybe a little bit bigger picture than that, what do you most eagerly expect in your life? What do you want? What are you longing for when you think about things? Maybe it's a work-related thing, maybe something that would happen with the business, uh, maybe it's something that you want to happen in a relationship. 
Maybe it's a, uh, that you want a relationship, or maybe it's that you want a child, or maybe a healing, or something. What is it that you most long for in your life? That's your expectation. The thing that you want to happen like yesterday. That's an eager expectation. And we all have them, and they happen all the time. We see it, we know that people are expecting stuff. We know that some people actually expected the world to end on Friday. And uh, some of you chuckle about that a little bit. The Mayan calendar was going to end, and so therefore the world was going to end, and people are upset about that. But the studies say that one in ten of us here today, and so you can look around, so somebody that you can see with an eye shot, had anxiety over that. The Amer- study said that Americans, one in ten, experienced real genuine fear, anxiety over the fact the world was going to end this past Friday. And we know that people were really expecting it because people were buying survival kits just in case this was true. Now, I'll tell you, from my perspective, I didn't even know what the Mayan calendar was uh, before people started talking about this. And I didn't know why the ending of it, like, my calendar is going to end on December 31st too, but I'm not thinking the world's over at that moment. Just get a, a new one. I don't even think about the Mayan calendar. Like, if you say to me out in the lobby, you know, we need to get together. Let me check my Mayan calendar. It, what, what is that? And somehow that meant that the world was going to end for some people, and a bunch of people started buying survival kits. I don't know what you're supposed to put to help somebody survive in a kit, but one company said that sales were up 400% in anticipation of this. So people were buying stuff. And I looked, I started looking to see what are in these things. They had stuff like flashlights, which made me scratch my head for a minute because I thought to myself, there's no world. Why do you need a flashlight? Like, what are you looking at? Just, just wondered. I just wondered at that moment. And then I saw that one of the popular items was a generator that you cranked in case the sun was out too. You didn't have solar panels. You could crank it and to get your cell phone to work. So then I thought to myself, so when the world's over, I'll have cell phone reception? Because it doesn't work on 540 all the time now. But apparently it's better when all the towers are gone. So that's apparently what happened. When people were buying this stuff, they were really expecting that. And there was one website I got, and I started reading. It had a bunch of New Age language on it, a bunch of evolutionary talk on there. One of the things it said is, you know, we can tell, though, with the energy in the universe, even if the world doesn't end on Friday, we can sense, everyone can sense, that it's time for us to take the next evolutionary step. Now, I don't buy all that anti-God philosophy. Obviously, a different worldview than that. wouldn't be standing here today. But what I see in that is anticipation, that people are wanting something more than this. There's a desire, a longing. The, the next thing would happen. Whatever the next thing is. And we know that the scripture says this is true. That there's a groaning in creation until Jesus returns. In Romans chapter 8, and verse 22, it says this. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Now pause, don't show the next verse yet. But you know what the reality is? That happens in the hearts of believers too. And a lot of times we don't like to talk about that. Because you've trusted Jesus. And so everything's supposed to be great. And he is enough and he's more than enough. And so you're not supposed to have longings in your soul, but you do. And sometimes we, you know, put Bible verses on it so that we don't talk about it. Or you just kind of go over and just do more ministry so we don't have to think about it. Um, different things we do to cope with this, but the reality is in our souls and our hearts, we're longing for Jesus too. This is in the next part of this verse. This is the Apostle Paul writing, by the way. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons. But wait, we've been adopted. Did we not read Ephesians? Did we not read Galatians? It says that we've been adopted, the redemptions of our bodies. But see, we live in a unique time that we oftentimes don't talk about. We're between the times, is what theologians call it. Between the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus. 
And sometimes you'll hear theologians use the language of the already and the not yet, and that's where we live. That some of these things already are experienced, but some of them are not yet until Jesus comes back. And so you'll see, and you can even read in the scriptures, we long for our salvation. We're already saved. Positionally, we're saved. Experientially, we're still longing for these things. And you'll hear many liberal theologians, they'll talk about all this stuff as if it's already experienced. Either they're experiencing something nobody else is experiencing, or they're misreading the scriptures, because the scriptures say there's an inward longing in us. It's okay, you should have this if you're a believer. A longing. A longing for Christ's return. A longing for forgiveness, which you've been forgiven, but you don't know what it is to really feel clean. A longing to receive your adoption. You're in the family, and positionally these things are true, but, the, but you don't know what it's like really to have all that stuff. Because you don't have Christ. You don't have him experientially. You're not with him now, but you have him, but it's already in the not yet. You're between the times. And so there's a longing for the things that positionally are an actuality, but experientially, you don't know what it is to be clean. You don't know what it is to be new. No, you're all, when all things are new in Christ, but we're being made new. It's in a process that we're in. There's a tension there. And so that we groan inwardly as we long for Christ. The problem is, for many of us, is that while we're longing for Christ, we try to fill that longing with other stuff. And we don't want to talk about it because then we must not really be a good Christian or maybe you're not really saved and just keep praying the prayer over and over again or whatever the thing is. And the reality is you should be longing for Christ. You're longing for his return because that's when all the things will be made known. That's when you'll, be, you'll know fully. See, we see in a glass darkly right now. It's dimly here. It's already not yet. You can be saved, but you're longing for your salvation. You can have peace, but you're longing to be with the Prince of Peace. And the problem is that so many of us try to fill that longing with other stuff. We either busy ourselves with ministry, we say cliche things, we try to fill it with material things, relationships, kids, job, all kinds of stuff. The reality is we're longing for Christ and Simeon. He knew what he was longing for. It says here in this passage, you go back to the passage, really in verses 21 through 24, Luke's setting up the context. He's getting the scene as he's, the, the movie's about to start playing, and it's kind of scanning the city here of what's taking place. And he starts off with here, the eighth day had taken place. Jesus received that name. It's above every name, the name that, that every knee will bow at, the name Jesus that the angel said would happen. And talk about a name. We sing about that name. There's no name like that. Later, Luke writes about it. Luke writes the book of Acts. Luke writes about it in Acts chapter 4, and he says it's the only name that has the power to save. And it's not just because of the word. I mean, the word, was, it was popular. Yeshua, it was a, the Hebrew word for uh, the Yahweh saves. It's the word salvation. He has given the title, the name salvation, as his name. But it's because of his life and what he does that makes that name have so much power. And if you haven't bowed your knee to that name, you will one day. Don't do it when it's too late. Don't do it after you've died. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Does that mean everybody becomes a Christian? No. You have an opportunity today. If you haven't accepted Christ today, today could be the day. You call upon that name. Jesus has given that name. And then, 33 days later, according to the book of Leviticus, Mary would come to the temple with Joseph. And so you've got this humble family and their baby Jesus, just over a month old. And they're coming there for two reasons, it says in verses 22 through 24. One, to dedicate him to God. Two, for her purification rites. And so they offer these sacrifices. But then in verse 25, it's like Luke is showing us the big picture of the temple and you're watching the things that are taking place. And then all of a sudden, verse 25, he zooms into this man, Simeon. And he does it with this word, now, verse 25. Now, now pay attention. It's a Greek word that could be translated and is sometimes in the New Testament. Look, behold, pay attention to this. Pay attention now in verse 25. I've shown you what's going on. But look here. There was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. 
Now, what do we know about Simeon? If you've been around church, you may have heard lots of things about Simeon. If you've heard this passage before, there's tradition tells us that he's a priest. We don't know if he's a priest. That's just what tradition tells us. There's nowhere else in the scripture that he's mentioned. It's only here in this passage. This passage does not say that he is a priest. So we don't know that. Tradition tells us that he's very old. Um, since, I, like I said, he's not mentioned in any other. It's kind of his cameo appearance in the Bible. <laughs> he got in though, right? Uh, but, but he's only here in this passage. So... Everything we know about Simeon is right here, and it doesn't say how old he is. Now, tradition tells us that he's between 112 and 113 years old. That is an old dude, right? And some people might think, well, no, people don't live that long. Did you know that just a few weeks ago, the oldest person in the world died? She was 116 years old. She said that her best years were in her 80s. So almost all of you, be encouraged. <laughs> the days are coming, right? Even if you're like 75, you're like, I like that guy. You know, all right. It's coming. The oldest person in the world now is 115. Many people believe that Simeon was about 112, 113 years old, but the Bible doesn't tell us that. We get hints in verse 26 and verse 29 that he's older, but we don't know how old he is. And so what do we know about Simeon? Everything we know about Simeon is right here in this passage of Scripture. So what does it say? Now, there was a man in Jerusalem, so he lived in Jerusalem. His name was Simeon, who was, first phrase, righteous and devout. That's what we know about him. What does it mean that he's righteous? We talked about this a little bit last week. We talked about Joseph. Because remember Joseph was mentioned as a righteous man? But I told you that also Paul says in the Bible, there are none righteous, no, not one. Paul says that in the book of Romans. Isaiah the prophet says it. And so wait, but is the Bible contradicting itself? Like how can you call a guy righteous? And now we've got two weeks in a row a guy called righteous. And you've got Job and you've got other guys in the scripture. It means, Luke means when he says that he's righteous, not that he never does anything wrong. He means that he's got a passion, a zeal to do what's right and to do it the right way. It doesn't mean he doesn't fail. He's human like us and we all mess up. Every one of us. Even those of us with the best intentions, we blow it. But remember what we talked about righteous people. Is it righteous people, not self-righteous people. Self-righteous people are very aware of everybody else's problems and everybody else's faults. Righteous people are acutely aware of their own sin. And so that's what we know about Simeon. He's a guy who's sensitive to his sin. He's a righteous man who wants to do what's right, and he's devout. He's very cautious and careful in the way that he goes about doing these things. And what is he doing? He was waiting. Pause. If you have a Bible, you can underline that word, waiting. And it'll just say to you, you didn't think we were going to do a series on timing and not talk about waiting, did you? And isn't that like the worst part about timing? Like you were hoping, like we could kind of gloss over that, the, the waiting idea. So we don't like to wait, do we? We hate to wait. There's a little sub point for you, a little rhymey for those of you who like that kind of thing. We hate to wait. Everybody, in our time, we hate to wait. For many of us, we think a slow-cooked meal is when you go to the microwave and you hit the 30-second button twice. It's like... All right, it's not a Pop-Tart. You know, I've got to go a little longer here. And, and for some of you, you're like me. I hate to wait. And you know, I'll tell you what I do. I confess to the first service. So I'll come up to, you ever come up to a stoplight, and, and it's red, but there's no car in front of you, and you kind of start watching the other intersection, it turns yellow, and I'll get going, like, even to where I'm, like, crawling. As long as I can keep the car moving, it makes me feel like I'm not waiting. Like, it's kind of, just keep moving. And the, 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 per, the perception that all of a sudden I, I've avoided this waiting circumstance, because we hate to wait. But you know what? God does some incredible work while we wait. Because you know what waiting does? Waiting leads us to wanting. The longer you wait, the more you want something. You think about with kids on Christmas morning. If you just gave them all their presents on December 1st and then told them, but Christmas is going to be a special day, would there be as much anticipation? It's the waiting that makes them want more. And the same thing's true with us. Waiting leaves us wanting. And the easiest illustration 
is in the sexual category. I'm going to tell you this to be a PG-13 message, so I won't get all graphic to you, but you read the Bible and you look for the book on sex, and it's in there, actually. There's a book on erotic love, romantic love. It's Song of Solomon. You know, it's interesting. If you read Song of Solomon, there's a refrain that goes through, a a repeated statement that's throughout the book. Do you know what it is? Do not awaken love before it is time. Let me paraphrase. Wait. Wait. Young people who are single, wait. Older people who are single, again, wait. I've been single longer than you're planning. I've been single, wait. Do not awaken love. It's talking about erotic, intimate, sexual love. Until it is time. Why? Because you can't fulfill it yet. But what do we do? We take shortcuts. We come to explanations. But I was not even cross the line, this imaginary line we make up, right? And we just keep moving it. <laughs> There's just this line. And how close can we get to the line? And we come up with all these reasons. And, and I told you, I didn't say it was going to be PG-13. I won't give you all the stats. Do you want to know what's happening? Just imagine what you think is like the most that would be happening at certain age levels and lower it and multiply it by 10. That's the stats. Very promiscuous society. And it happens way younger than you would anticipate that it happens. Why? We don't want to wait. When we talk about it in the sexual category, we talk about it in every category. Okay, it's not just sexual. Why do you think there's so much debt? We don't want to wait. We don't want to wait until God provides for something to have it. We want it now. We see it in relationships. People get in relationships they shouldn't be in. They don't want to wait for God to provide the person that he's leading them to. We see it with multiple things. You fill in the blank with whatever circumstance and scenario it is. We hate to wait. And do you know what happens when we fail to wait? It leads to failure. And you go through the scripture over and over, example after example of people who don't wait on God, some of them even living by faith, and it leads to failure when they try to rush ahead and try and make things happen on their own. Esau, Esau's a great example. He blows, has no idea what the cost is, and it's, inter- it's incredible, it's terrible. Look at Abraham, the father of our faith. He's doing exactly what we all want to do. Living by a promise, that's walking by faith. That's what it is to walk by faith, to live by faith. You live according to the promises of God. And that's what Abraham's doing. He's given a promise. He's going to have a land seed and blessing. He's waiting on the seed. He's past the glory years of the 80s. He's now in his 90s. And uh, God's promised him he's going to have a child. And he can't see how that's going to happen. And so his wife comes to him and says, Hey, why don't you sleep with my servant, Hagar? And uh, he's the father of our faith, right? But he's a total dope in this situation. Okay, cool deal. He just sleeps with the woman. They have a baby, and uh, it's a bunch of problems. Not just for Abraham and Sarah and Hagar and all the people that are involved, because that's how our sin works. There's always a ripple effect with our sin. It doesn't just touch the person who's sinning. You think it's just your thing. You think it's not hurting anybody. There's always a ripple effect. There's a ripple effect for sin, and it impacts a nation. That's the father of our faith. He didn't want to wait. And we fail to wait, it leads to failure. And some of you think about, are you in a waiting time period? And you go, yeah, but I can't rush the thing that I'm waiting for. I'm waiting for healing. Or I'm waiting for, you know, my parents to come to Christ. Or I'm waiting for, and you fill in the blank with something that's so out of your control. And you think, I could never shortcut that. Oh, don't be deceived. (laughs) We come up with ways. And we do. And one of the things we do is we'll get busy. We get so busy, we don't have to think about the waiting. And we miss out on what God's trying to teach us there. See, God wants to do a work in our waiting. That's one of the things we do. Sometimes we go and we fulfill it with something else. Like, I so I want to have kids, or I want to be married, and I want to do this, but then instead, we'll just climb the corporate ladder, or we'll just get this, make this purchase, or we'll just get this person to like us, or we'll just do these other things to try and fill this void where God's got us in this waiting time period. He's trying to do a work in us, and we're robbing ourselves of the experience. Psalm 27, verse 14, he says this, Wait for the Lord, be strong, and take heart, and wait. It's a command in Scripture to wait for the Lord. But that's the thing we hate the most. We go through the fruit of the Spirit. Patience, want it. Love, want it. Joy, patience. Uh, don't pray for patience. It might happen. We don't want to wait. It does a wonderful work in our waiting. 
Some of you are waiting. What's God doing? See, Simeon, he was waiting. And our problem is some of us, we think that what we're waiting for is that circumstance. If I just were healed, if somebody that I'm praying for, if they would just come to Christ, if I could just have a child, if I could just get married, if I, could just, if I just had this much money in the bank, and we think once those things would happen, we're deceived into thinking once those things happen, the longing in our soul will go away. And it won't. Don't be deceived. Ultimately, they will only go away when, when you either die and you're with Christ or Christ comes back. And so the longing that you have is ultimately only fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And Simeon knew that. It says here that he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. Now, what does that mean, consolation of Israel? It's an Old Testament way of speaking of the coming of the Messiah, of Jesus Christ. And why would you be waiting for consolation unless you needed to be consoled? Unless you needed comfort? That's what it is. And for Israel, God used difficult circumstances to show them their need for comfort. And they were under Roman oppression. Their real need wasn't that they would be freed from Roman oppression. Their real need was their sin. But for us, isn't it true experientially for you, those of you who are believers, you long for Jesus to return when? When everything's going really well? Like everything's on schedule for the day and you know, everything's working out really nice and all the circumstances are great? No, at least I don't. I know for me, it's like when there's a deadline pressing and I don't know if I'm going to be ready, if the thing's going to happen, difficult circumstances are going. Sometimes you just look at the, sometimes you just look like the stuff that happened in Connecticut last week. You look around and you're like, who kills kids? Jesus, come back. Just come. Like, just, we're, we did, just wipe this place out and come back. He doesn't. You know why he doesn't? We're told in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, he's, he's not willing that any would perish, and he's waiting that more would come to repentance, that people would come to know him. It's not just to put us through the pain of being in this place and the longing. He's got a plan in our lives here, but, but he's the comforter. He's the consoler. He's the one that fills. And Simeon gets to experience that in our passage. What it says, he's waiting for the consolation of Israel. That's Jesus Christ to come. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit, we don't know how or exactly when, that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And then verse 27, moved by the Spirit, and we see the Spirit repeated throughout here. And it's like in the waiting, you'll see the people grow a sensitivity to the Spirit. It says, moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. When the parents brought the child Jesus, isn't it kind of neat how the timing just kind of happened to work out there? Think about how easy Simeon could have missed this. Man, I need a sandwich. I'm not going to the temple courts right now. I could have gone, totally missed the Messiah. Eh, another day, right? No, this is like the thing you've been promised. God's timing is always perfect. It wasn't happenstance. It was coincidence. The Spirit guided him. Did he even realize? Who knows? Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts when the parents brought the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, dedicate him to God. And Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, now you can dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation. And here we see Simeon, he's singing about, in verse 29 through 32, it's a psalm, it's a song that he starts to sing there in the temple. Singing about, God, you did everything you said you were going to do. Now I can go in peace. Now I'm fulfilled because now he sees Christ. Now he holds that little baby who's God in the flesh, a little child, a little baby. And he looks at him, and when he looks into the eyes of that child, he's looking at salvation. Now, the reality is, that's what happened there for Simeon. But you and I aren't going to hold a little baby that's God in the flesh in our arms. So what was it that was taking place there? Because this only happened for a few people, just a handful. Simeon, Anna, Mary, Joseph. And it's interesting to think about 
how many people were at the temple at that moment? How many religious people were there coming to offer their sacrifices, coming to sing their songs and do their worship, and they totally missed the Messiah? And how many people will go to church this weekend and next, and the one after that, and will go through religious motions and totally miss Jesus? But Luke doesn't tell us. He doesn't tell us how many people, so it's just an interesting thought. But for Simeon, it was that experience when he saw the power of God in his arms that he experienced Jesus Christ for himself. That's what happened. God revealed himself and the power of himself at that moment, and that was enough for Simeon. It wasn't enough for Simeon to just know that this was promised and that someday it would happen. It wasn't enough for Simeon for someone else to have this experience. He had to have this experience. And it's when he had this experience that then he realized and knew the power of God. And so the question for you is, what about you? Because you won't have that experience. So what will it take for you? I was watching uh, a headline. I was reading uh, some stuff online this week, and there's this headline that grabbed my attention. Um, for those of you who know who Bill Maher is, you'll know why this grabbed my attention. It said that Bill Maher, who's an outspoken atheist, speaks against Christianity often, said that Bill Maher leads a promiscuous, cocaine-dealing atheist to Christ. <laughs> Got my attention. In case you're wondering, if you want to see the video, it's on my Facebook page. Um, but I was thinking to myself, Bill Maher led someone to Christ? 95% of Christians never lead anyone to Christ. And Bill Maher led someone to Christ? Like, I want to see this. And so I clicked on this video, I start to watch it, and there's this young man, he stands up. He starts to share his story, and as he starts to share his story, he starts to list off all the sins he'd been involved in. He basically goes through the Ten Commandments. talks about how he broke all of them. He says, when I was born, I was steeped in sin, and I uh, grew up in sin, and as I continued to grow, I got more involved. When I went away to college, I became an alcoholic, started to become a drug user, a cocaine dealer. He used people. Um, obviously, he mentioned promiscuous. He said, I dishonored my parents. I had hatred in my heart. My heart was filled with lust and greed. I was a user of people. And so he just goes through it, and he lists how he broke all these commandments. He says, one day, 2008, he's at a Blockbuster video. As he's walking through the video store, he sees this mockumentary, it's a mocking religion called Religiousless by Bill Maher, and he picks it up, he takes it home, and he goes and watches it. And when he's done, he's got a desire in his heart to know more about Christianity, <laughs> which God can use anything, right? <laughs> he can do whatever he wants to do and however he wants to do it. And he said, so I Googled Christian debates. And as he Googled Christian debates, he ends up finding a guy that some of you have maybe heard of before. His name is Ravi Zacharias. He's a Christian apologist. And uh, he's debating with people about Christianity. And this guy starts to watch it over a, time, a year time period. And in his words, he said, over that year time period, God dismantled everything that I believed. He had taken apart all the faulty worldview that he had that built him up as opposing God. So after a couple years of studying these things and listening to these things, in 2010... He got on a website called Desiring God. John Piper is uh, the main person that puts material on there. And he said he was going to listen to a message by Mr. Piper. It was from John 3.16. And he said, five minutes into the message, so you don't have to wait for invitation, right? Five minutes into the message, he said, I knew that there was a hell, that it was real, that I deserved to go there, and that I was going there. He said, but five minutes in, he became overwhelmed with the fact that Jesus Christ had died on the cross to pay for the very sins that were sending him to that place, hell, and will forgive him of those sins and bring him into a right relationship with God. And he trusted Christ as a Savior, which is amazing. He called upon the name that has the power to save, Jesus Christ. And then he says in his video, he says, it's unbelievable that I'm standing here talking to you about this. If you'd asked me three years ago that I, what I'd be doing, the idea that I would be standing here talking to somebody about how God had changed my life, it was unbelievable. He says, it's a testimony, and he speaks to the believers at this point. He says, nobody's too lost. Nobody's too far gone. 
Because this gospel is powerful. And then he says to all the believers, he goes, go share this gospel. Tell people this gospel. Because of how it changed his life. And for him, it was a year time period to listen to Robbie Zacharias and then five minutes of John Piper. <laughs> There's a competition, right? But anyway. It was seeing the words on the page of John 3.16. For Simeon, it was seeing a little baby in his arms. What does it take for you? And, and I don't want to portray that like you say this, then God has to do that, and then you'll believe. But what would it take for you to, and I'm talking about being religious. Some of you I'm talking to, I'm not just talking to non-believers. I'm talking to some of you who have been Christians for a long time. You just kind of always, yeah, it's just true. You just have been around the truth. What would it take for you to experience the power of God in your life? What would he have to do? How would he need to reveal himself to you? And it might be different than what you would think, but at least as you answer that question, you start to think of some of your obstacles. See, it was different for Simeon. Now, none of us are going to hold that little baby in our arms. And none of the people that we come into contact with are ever going to do that either. So, what does God do? Simeon says he's ready to die. Simeon doesn't die, at least not in this passage, as far as we know. So that means that God still has a plan for him here. He's between the times now. First coming of Christ, second coming of Christ, and God still has a plan. And God's plan is then to still reveal his Christ. And you know how he does it? It's through his church. <laughs> That's interesting when you consider what that means. Because the church is so messed up. You know why it's messed up? Because we go to it. <laughs> I was talking to a buddy of mine um, that before we came to plant uh, Southbridge this week, and he and I were just chatting. And he was a guy, we used to sit down when I was interning at a church, and we'd write out what the perfect church would look like. And one day I said to him, we'll go plant that church someday. He said, how's your church doing? I goes, well, it's messed up now because it's no longer just on paper. <laughs> There's people there. So it got messed up as soon as I showed up. But the interesting thing is that's how God chooses to reveal himself to the world now. That's his plan. Whether you like it or not, that's his plan. And he says so in Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 22, he says, And God placed all things under his feet, talking about Christ, and appointed him to be head over everything for the church. And then look at what he says about the church. That's his body and the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. And that's the way he operates in this world. He wants to reveal himself and the power of his glory and the power of this gospel through his church. And that's why we do the things we do as a church. That's why we say we exist to connect people for Jesus, to Jesus for life change. That's why we make a big deal about Jesus all the time. That's why uh, next week we'll have the dollar offering to try and uh, give money. Not because of the legalities and paperwork of adoption are so important to us. Because the, we're, one, commanded to take care of orphans. And two... Adoption is a picture of the gospel. And we want people to see that picture. That's why after the second service, many of you will go and you'll grab some packages and we'll go to a restaurant and we want to bless the waiters and waitresses and the cooks there and we'll have our restaurant outreach. It's not because we think they need gum and candy and all this stuff. We're going to give them that gift bag so bad. It's not because we want to be just nice people or generous. We want them to see a tangible expression of Jesus Christ. And not so that they'll like someday attend our church. No, we want them to experience the power of the gospel. We wanted to see their, their lives transformed because yours has been, right? And if it hasn't, then you can have them now. You don't have to wait for me to say anything. He wants you. He, he wants you to experience him. And he does it by his spirit. And for some of you, he's speaking to you in your spirit right now. And here's the deal. Every one of us here should have an eager expectation in our hearts just by the very fact that we're here on this earth at this moment. An eager expectation, a longing for Christ and his return. And that's what it is. And each person has it. It doesn't matter if you're Hindu or Buddhist. If you make documentaries that mock Jesus Christ or you're an avid follower of Jesus Christ, he's placed in each one of our hearts. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 and verse 11, he said eternity in our hearts. We all long for something more than this, more than what's here. And it's only found in Jesus Christ. But as long as we're still here, that means that God has a plan for us. And so let me tell you the last point, and it's short. God's plan can be trusted. And hopefully you're becoming annoyed by the fact 
that uh, I'm making that the last point of every message in this series, but hopefully you'll remember it. God's timing is perfect. His plan can be trusted. His timing can be troubling, but his plan can still be trusted. His timing is personal. His plan can be trusted. His timing should lead us to an eager expectation of him. But as long as we're still between the times, as long as we're still in the already not yet, as long as we still live here on this earth, and all those longings won't be fulfilled until he comes back, he's got a plan for us here. He tells us that. We see it through every person we've looked at through this series. Paul's the one who wrote Galatians 4.4. Remember Paul's life? He's on his way. He thinks he's doing exactly what God wants him to do. Then God uses tragedy. Tragedy. To get his attention to show him, you're actually doing the opposite of what I want you to do. And he sends him on a totally different path the second half of his life. But he has to trust. That's God intervening. And even though he had the best intentions and wanted to do what was right, that he was so wrong. And then you see Mary, that young gal. And some of us, we think, if God would just tell me, if he'd just like write it in the clouds, if he'd just send me a note, if there'd just be an angel, she had that kind of thing. She couldn't have understood any of that stuff. There's no way. She says, I'm the Lord's servant. I'll do whatever you want me to do. And then you see Joseph. Joseph's got a plan. I'm going to divorce her. And God says, I've got a different plan. And he goes with God's plan, which is a great idea. Because his plan can be trusted. And here we see Simeon. Simeon, he tells us some stuff about God's plan. He sings this psalm to Mary and to Joseph. Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, now dismiss your servant in peace. He sings it to God. And for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all people. All people. In the sight of the Mormons and the Buddhists and Jehovah's Witnesses. And all people, yeah, he's prepared. Jesus Christ is available for all. Not everyone will place their faith in Jesus, but he's here. It's for all people. A light of revelation to Gentiles, for the glory to your people, Israel, for Jews and for Gentiles. The child's father and mother, they marveled. They've had angels visit them, but they're marveling at what he says here because they're realizing how great their son will be. And then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against. Now that's interesting because that's the life of Jesus. We know the scripture teaches even in the Old Testament that God opposes the proud, gives grace to the humble. You think about who will fall and who will rise. There are some people that will fall. Judas is the best example, right? He's the most extreme because of the life of Jesus Christ. You'll see other people that will rise. It's those that are humble. Some humble fishermen prostitutes, tax collectors, but also the elite, people like Joseph of Arimathea, that we'll read about it at the end of the Luke, and he's eagerly expecting, waiting for the genuine God-fearers that will humble themselves before God and come to him. They will rise. The religious, like the Pharisees and Judas and all those people, they will fall. And he's a sign that will be spoken against. This is tough news for Mary, especially when you think about what she knows up to this point. Then verse 35 so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. Everyone, at one point in time in their life, has to decide what they're going to do with Jesus Christ. And it will reveal your heart, how you respond. Humble or proud. And then he says this to Mary. And a sword will pierce your own soul too. That's tough. Now, scholars debate about exactly what's being referred to here, but we know that he's referring to some pain that is going to take place in Mary's life. Some people talk about oh, that you know, in the next story she's going to lose Jesus, right? And that's kind of tough, tough situation. Uh, you lose God's son. I mean, you, your kid gets out of place at the store. Kind of scary, but you got like God's son there, right? And they lost Jesus at the temple. That's tough. There's a later time where Jesus will say about uh, people that are not blood relatives of his, these are my brothers and this is, these are my mother. These, it's these people. These people are my family. How much do you think that hurts a mother's heart? Maybe it's that. She's struggling in her own faith about who Jesus really is and what will happen. Maybe it's that. 
But ultimately we know that it means the cross. Because she will, as a mother, and trying to imagine what it would be like to be a mother. You held this baby in your arms and you've seen his face. And then you see him up there. You know what he looks like as a baby. And you see him on a cross, beaten, mocked, bleeding, and dying for your sins. Because even as his mom, you need redemption. You need salvation. And maybe that's what's meant here by the sword will pierce your own soul. But we know that Simeon teaches us something about God's plan. And that God has a plan for each one of us. <clears throat> In Ephesians chapter 2, and verse 10, he tells us, and he's prepared a plan for us before the beginning of time that we're God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. And, he, and he's got a plan for us, good works that he's planned for us to do in the beginning of time. It's different for each one of us. But here we see one of the things that's revealed about God's plan is that God's plan can sometimes be painful. It's difficult. And that's one of the reasons why some of us don't like to wait. Because it's painful to wait. Because in the waiting, sometimes we've got to deal with our stuff. In the waiting, sometimes we want God to do something that we think, and we think we know more than him, we think would be the best thing for him and for us, and he doesn't do it. In the waiting, he's trying to do a work in our hearts. And the waiting can be painful. And circumstances can be painful. I love what C.S. Lewis says. He's got a quote that says this. It says, God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks in our conscience. But he shouts in our pains. It's his megaphone to awaken or to rouse a deaf world. And so what does God want to speak to you about his plan for you? Because his plan for all of us is the same, that you would come to know Jesus Christ as your Savior and that God would see Jesus, or people would see Jesus as God works through you to this world. We present as the body of Christ, Jesus Christ to a lost world, but it looks different for every one of us. It looks different in our struggles. It looks different in our victories. It looks different in our defeats. It looks different in your workplace and where you go in the community and where you live and have your being. It looks different for each one of us. So what is he speaking to you about his plan in your life? For some of you, it's whispering in the pleasures. You've got to stop. You've got to listen. It's a still small voice. For others of you, he's been speaking to your conscience since we started this message, and you know that you have something on the throne of your life, you have something that you've been trying to fulfill along that can only be fulfilled by Christ, and you need to repent. He's speaking in your conscience. For others of you, he wants to speak in your pain, but you need to listen. Because the consolation of Israel, the comforter who says, come to me all who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest for your soul, he's already come, and he wants to carry that burden, and he says to us, Cast your cares upon me because I care for you. And he wants to speak to you in your pain. And what we're going to do as we conclude today, I'm going to give you some time to talk to the Lord. Hopefully in your soul there's an anticipation, just like a child on Christmas morning, longing for that day. There's a longing in your soul that can only be fulfilled by Jesus Christ. And so we want to give you an opportunity to talk to him. For some of you, that means this needs to be a time of repentance. Because you've been trying to fill that void with toys, with iPads and video games and cars and all that kind of stuff. And ultimately, that longing that's in your soul will never be fulfilled by any of those things. It's only through Jesus Christ. And maybe you say, well, I'm a Christian. Yeah, but you've got these idols and it's time to repent. You've got things that you've put in the place of God that were never meant to be in the place of God. And maybe it's people and you need to turn from that and turn to Christ. And some of you here, you need to start a relationship with Jesus. You can do that today too. Others of you, you just need to ask him. He is a wonderful counselor and you are in pain. You need to take your burdens to him. And so the worship team is going to come. They're going to play some music. But we just want to go to the Lord in a time of prayer. And I'll begin us. Let's just bow our heads and our hearts before the Lord. Our Father, we come before you. I pray that you draw someone into your family right now. 
I pray if there's someone here that just came in because it's Christmas or just came in because uh, they were going to go to a movie later or whatever reason, Father, I pray that you would bring them from darkness to light, that you'd bring them from their sin into forgiveness, that you'd bring them from death to life. And if you want to trust Jesus Christ as your Savior, you can just say, God, I want you to be my Savior. He knows, and he died for your sins on the cross. He rose again. He offers you that gift. You have to receive that gift. And Father, I pray for those that are believers that need to repent. I pray that you'd put a heavy conviction on their hearts right now that they wouldn't be able to avoid this by thinking about the next thing or any of that stuff, that you'd put a pressure, a miserable pressure on them of conviction so that they would come to know you more. And I pray for those who need comfort, that you'd lift their spirits, their souls. God, speak to us in these moments.